Hello, and welcome to What is Innovation? The podcast that explores the reality of a word that is in danger of losing its meaning altogether. This podcast is produced by Outlast Consulting, LLC, a boutique consultancy that helps companies use innovation principles to solve their toughest business problems. I'm your host, Jared Simmons, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Ethan Karp. Dr. Ethan Karp is an expert in transforming companies and communities. As president and CEO of the nonprofit consulting group Magnet, he has helped hundreds of manufacturing companies grow through technology, innovation, and talent. He is passionate about driving economic prosperity in his home region of Northeast Ohio. He's a committed changemaker and community builder, board chair of the Cleveland Cuyahoga County Workforce Development, and he also serves as a director on the boards of the American Small Manufacturers Coalition, the Cleveland Leadership Center, Midtown Cleveland Inc., Cleveland Jewish Publication Company, and the Jewish Education Center of Cleveland. Dr. Karp is a recognized thought leader on manufacturing issues and is a frequent media commentator on the future of manufacturing in America. Prior to joining Magnet in 2013, Dr. Karp worked with Fortune 500 companies at McKinsey & Company. He received undergraduate degrees in biochemistry and physics from Miami University and a PhD in chemical biology from Harvard University. Dr. Karp lives in Cleveland with his wife and three young girls. Ethan, so good to see you again, my friend, and thank you for joining us on the show today. Absolutely. Really glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. So let's dive right in. What, in your mind, is innovation? I take a really broad view of this. Our organization, Magnet, we exist as a nonprofit. Our mission, we're here to grow our manufacturers in Northeast Ohio. So Mm. Cleveland, Akron, Canton, Youngstown, cities that truly depend on manufacturing. 50% of our economy depends on manufacturing. Most of those manufacturers are small. Mm. And there's where innovation has to exist. But in working with all those companies, I broadly define them doing new things that they haven't done before as innovation. Mm. Mm -hmm. I can define it in a thousand other different ways. But when you talk to a company, it's like an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, I can say, what's somebody that wrote an idea on the back of the napkin is plowing ahead and stubbornly trying to make their idea into the next billion dollar idea. Or I can say, hey, it's the business owner that decided to take a risk and make an investment. That's an entrepreneur. Right. Same here as innovation. Could be that startup who's creating a brand new product, doing something brand new, or it could be an existing company that says, you know what, for me, this is innovation. I'm trying to do something new. Right. No, that's well said. Coming from the corporate world, we really get wrapped up in Defining innovation, putting innovation in titles, creating separate teams for innovation, separate work processes and all these things. But to your point, in the smaller companies, it's new work. Like there isn't an innovation department. It's what am I doing today that I wasn't doing yesterday? I love that way of thinking about it. And I think systematizing it, though, is the piece that people don't often think of. Mm, Exactly. Sure. You've talked about like the myths of, oh, innovation and brilliance just comes in creativity and all those sorts of things. Yeah, sometimes, but normally it's just you're intentional about it. And for our companies, you're making investments in it. Mm. That's probably bar none the biggest thing is you not only can actually make innovation happen, you don't have to just have a spark of genius, but to do so, you have to put money in and treat it strategically rather than haphazardly. Right, right, right. I love that you brought in the investment side of it because there's this sort of gap 
between technology and innovation. And a lot of people, when they start talking about innovation, they slip into talking about technology, even unconsciously. And so when you talk about investing in innovation, yes, that's new equipment. Yes, it's new technology, but it's also investing, like you said, in that new way of working. And that's not always technology driven. A hundred percent. So we spent a lot of time, 40 years doing this work here. Mm. And we work with startups. We work with these established small companies. We do a lot in talent, trying to figure out how to get the community, civic community, right, to get primarily people of color into manufacturing and have our factories actually look like our communities. What I see across there are some themes, and we put these together into stories that we told, and you all can check it out at makeitbetterohio.org. It's stories. It's our strategy for our region to say, how do we continue to literally build the United States, have all of these companies that drive our overall economy thriving? Your distinction, one of our four buckets is technology. Mm. And we distinguish that from innovation, even though when I say it's the broadest bucket, maybe you could throw it under there. Right. But we distinguished it because we see technology, and maybe you call it technology innovation if you really want to, upgrading your plan, adding those new industry 4.0 technologies, all those buzzwords, things you can see behind me in our sort of showcase facility, they're affordable. That's important to do. But you can't do that to the exclusion of figuring out what's your next product, what's your next service, what's your business model going to be. They're separate, complemented with a third pillar around talent, which also has an innovation component in a major way, which we can talk about. But our fourth pillar is leadership. And the reason we put leadership as a pillar, because yes, it's integrated with all the other ones, is that there's leadership at a community level, right? I can help accelerate through my efforts, through ecosystems, through consultants, funding, I can help accelerate innovation. But that is all completely useless, as well as I collaborate in a community, if the individual business owners do not take risk and put money into innovation and innovation into technology and in their people, mm. in their talent recruitment pipeline culture, that's probably the most important aspect of innovation bar none is actually putting money toward it. Oh, so much there that we definitely have to unpack. I love that you already had that pillar of technology already separated from innovation. And the people side of innovation is, I think, to your point, one of the most neglected and underfunded and under-resourced aspects of innovation. Tell me more about the talent side of things. Let's talk about that. Fundamentally, no manufacturers and as of the last year, like no companies can fully fill their pipeline. Mm -hmm. So you got to say, stop doing the same things you've always done. Stop looking for the talent in the same places. And you can do an analysis real simply and say, well, where are the people? And you're not looking at unemployment rates. You're looking at labor force participation rates. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to see in a place like Cleveland, where I'm sitting from today, the labor force participation in the community right outside my walls here versus the suburb that is seven miles that way, mm -hmm. there's a 15% absolute value difference. Wow. That means there are 15% fewer people, absolute number, in the population of the city here participating in any form of employment. There's the talent. Mm -hmm. You add on top of that, those that are being underpaid at a Walmart, those that are being actually pretty well paid for an entry job at like Taco Bell, Right. with zero prospects of advancement, right. you add that population, it's a huge number of people that we should be going after. But the interesting thing there is you go and you ask, all right, a recruiter. 
recruiters have every single incentive in the world to go and get these people into employment. They're being paid by the person who goes in. So I've asked many of them, well, why is it that you're not going into the city, et cetera? It's too expensive. It's too expensive because the individuals in this community have barriers. A lot of them are systemic racism related mm -hmm. and created by redlining and all those sorts of things. A lot of them is just chronic poverty. You want to throw in all of the society issues that cause equity divides. Well, they're right there. Mm. And the person's transportation is more difficult. Convincing them to trust me that there's a good job for them is more difficult. Getting them to be able to handle childcare or whatever it is, right. is much more difficult. It's much more expensive. So now back to the companies. Companies need to figure this out. They're going to need to do it together because one company just doesn't have enough energy, time, or money to figure it out. Together, especially when you come together and you can get government to kind of help you as well, you now can start putting in systemic changes that actually make a difference. And this is one aspect of innovation in a community setting that companies need to lead. Mm. We call them sector partnerships here. But if they come together and they say, all right, you can't just do a training if nobody enters the training. You can't just do a training even if people do get in the training, but they can't get transportation. You can't let them get transportation if they're going to have a childcare issue tomorrow and you haven't helped them deal with that or given them the soft skills or they're coming out of the prison system and you figured out how to help them with that. You've got to string it all together and solve it all at the same time. That is innovation in my mind. It's not rocket science, though. Nothing that I said, you're like, oh, yeah, we need to absolutely make sure people can get to a job site. I mean, that's, that's no brainer, but we don't string them all together. Mm -hmm. That's one half. The other half is culture. I mean, we talk about it all the time. As a millennial CEO, the last nine years, I can see that the way people interact in the workplace and a lot of workplaces, especially manufacturing, could be a lot better. A lot more people-centric, a lot more friendly, and mm -hmm. talk about diversity we're trying to include. Mm. Well, there's a lot missing there that would allow somebody the safety, the psychological safety to actually come into a work environment, be themselves, which ultimately is going to let them advance, et cetera. Again, these are investments that have to be made in time and money into companies. So mm. those, I would say, span the gamut of innovation in the talent system. Well said. I love that it ties in with technological innovation, as you said, because the people who are operating your new technologies, the people who are helping to brainstorm and come up with the jobs to be done for these new technologies have to come from somewhere. And having as diverse a group as possible, having a group that understands dynamics, interpersonal dynamics, and appreciates those things is important. But I mean, what you hit on is the most critical part, which is the systemic solutions to these problems. Because when people point at these things and say, this is why, they're not wrong, but that can't be the end of the story. Exactly. I love the way you said no one company can solve this. Folks are going to have to come together. They're going to have to hold the recruiters accountable. They're going to have to hold that industry accountable. Too expensive has to be addressed. There has to be an answer to that. It can come governmentally, it can come through a collaboration with corporations, but what does risk look like and what does expensive look like in that space? Those are the things that have to be innovated. And risk tolerance. Yes. So now you're at the heart of all innovation. I could talk about this all day just from those entrepreneurs that I see. Mm. Somebody you know, we're working with, we also fund some of these startups, creating a better battery and has a new battery technology. 
Now, the risk profile that he has to have to put all of his life aside to pursue this is crazy, right? And that's what we think of. We think of these entrepreneurs who are willing to just put everything out there because they believe in their idea so much to the point where it's a little nuts. Right. Our whole methodology, we wrote a whole book on how to help physical product startups called The Value Proposition Matrix. We wrote a whole book last year on it. Wow. And it just goes through how do you make sure basically you don't lose your life's fortune which you can easily do when making a physical product. Mm. You can't just spend your blood, sweat, and tears in the night while you have a job coding something and show it to people, right? You're going to have to buy engineering. You're going to have to get molds. You're going to have to like, you're in it half a mil to a mil no matter what you do. That's, yeah, yeah. And the number of people that will come to us and say, hey, we have the greatest idea ever. All right, tell us your idea. Well, that's interesting. Do you have people that have told you they want this? Can you tell me about my wife loves this so <laughs> she would buy 10 of them. And we're like, that's great. Anybody else? No, obviously it's a good idea, right? Just the basics of, <laughs> oh my goodness, do the market study, do those sorts of things. But I'm just telling you, the risk profile in that person's mind is off the charts. Yeah. Or the other side, and I'm going to talk about technology for a second because that's the easiest thing to see. Mm. It's a $30,000 robot. It's going to remove a job category that nobody wants to do, sanding something, repetitively moving something. And yet, because it's different and it's difficult to use, these collaborative robots, robots you don't need fencing around. It can just literally right. beside you because when it knocks into you, it stops. We have trouble getting manufacturers to look at that inside their plant because it's new, it's different, things are working the way they are. That's an extra $30,000. You know, we're trying to inspire them to do that. But imagine that risk profile when then I say, all right, well, you really should be putting half a million, million dollars a year into innovation. And while I can convince you, you will produce something, I don't really know whether you'll get it this year or next year, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to happen and you can make it happen, but there's no clear A to Z. Nope. The risk profile's so off. And I think as a, probably as a country, but certainly as a region with all these manufacturers, that's their biggest threat. Mm. They don't put money into this. The value of their company is just going down and down and down. And we're going to have a lot of companies that are sold for spare parts in a decade. That's really sad, mm. but it's also a threat to our economy. Making right. stuff produces a lot of economic good, produces a lot. And, and we haven't even talked about this, right? Spin-outs. Mm. There to me is a holy grail, and I don't see enough of it. There's where you have the entrepreneur who has this crazy idea with a company or coming from inside a company who can fund that idea and probably have some customers they can go to. I mean, you take all of the decade of work that an entrepreneur does raising its first million dollars, dealing with equity and all those sorts of things. And you say, hey, medium-sized company, you've just created an entirely new value stream for you for the future. Mm. And I think there needs to be a tremendous, you can call it entrepreneurship, spinouts, whatever you want. That's an area which theoretically sounds good. And I don't see it happening enough because established companies get into that very low risk taking profile. Uh, it's the business model innovation piece. But we've talked about technological innovation. We've talked about the innovation on the talent side and the organizational development side. You're hitting on the business model innovation piece of this. And that's where risk goes from me as a person to enterprise level risk. And once you start thinking in an enterprise perspective, for some reason, the calculus shifts. Henry Ford started Ford, right? He was an entrepreneur at some point. Ford is not a startup anymore. And so at some point, it went from an entrepreneurial mindset to an enterprise mindset. And then when that shift happens, that's where this other non-innovation 
risk profile is born and starts to bloom and take over things. And I think we don't really consciously acknowledge that the way you just did in the life cycle of a company. And I think we need to do that because I think it would help people do what you just did, which is reframe risk in a context that allows you to see it more objectively. The minute you feel like you're in charge of a business, an enterprise, a, a monolith of a separate thing, everything changes. Oh, I have to protect this thing. I have to preserve this thing. This represents risk to the enterprise. And I feel like that's where innovation dies this sort of slow, quiet death. And then something that isn't a threat to the enterprise gets relabeled as innovation. And then off you go without even recognizing the substitution. There's a company around here. Any of the listeners from around the Cleveland area, if you're ever going west on 90, you'll see a giant red barn. Everybody knows it if you're traveling. It's a like, giant red barn. <laughs> and it looks like a, like a farm. Yeah. And it's not. It's Betcher Industries. And it's a very large manufacturing facility. And what they make are these little circular blades, handheld circular blades. And what that does is in meat factories, mm -hmm. this blade for decades now, patented, is able to get closer to the bone and it gets more meat off the bone. Right. I mean, you get 10% more meat. I don't, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a very large amount of meat, right? So you can wow. calculate how many families is that feeding, right? Very cool product. Obviously started from an innovation. So fast forward decades now. And so this is probably like 10 years ago. They got a call from a hospital, from a grafting department, a skin grafting. Oh. So they had somebody call into their customer service and basically say, hey, do your knives work on people? You know, one of these <laughs> like crazy moments. And the company was not like crank collar. They pushed it over to their engineers. Oh, wow. Now they have driving business doing this, actually the same knife can cut off cadavers and do skin transplants for burn victims and things like this better than any of the other technology. So they have a whole spin out company, but I can tell you, even that company required government investment to get everybody comfortable to make that initial leap mm. to try and make it into a real company. So even in the scenario where you've got everything going for you, it still needs a risk profile that's lowered. Mm -hmm. It's such a cool innovation and spin out story. Yeah. Literally with a spinning blade and all. I think that's so neat. And I, and I just wish there were more stories of individual companies doing that. Right. Yeah. I think organizations like yours make it more likely that people will feel empowered to think that way and see risk that way. I think what we do really well is lower the risk barrier. Mm -hmm. We are lowering the curve. Yeah. But it's only within a certain degree, right? <laughs> right? And I don't know how to break the curve. And I also don't know how to inspire you in the first place to consider the curve. Mm -hmm. Because when you're really risk averse, it's like the person that says, I would never be an entrepreneur, right? Right. It doesn't matter if I laid them in front of them on a golden platter, here's your business, you just need to go do X, Y, Z. They're going to not even look at it. Right. Even though it really was a low risk, they're not even going to look at it because that's the mentality. And I think that's the same thing here. When you have a really risk averse person, they're saying, yeah, that costs money. I'm not even going to look at the risk curve because they're inflating what it looks like. So you need a person who's like, yeah, I would do it if not for the riskiness. And now I can lower it, make it easier, make it better, make it less expensive. Government can do that. How do we inspire more people to take an honest look at their risk profile and compare it to what's going to happen in 10 years? Hmm. I truly believe that people are overestimating the value of their company in 10 years and not playing through the scenario of what happens to their future checkbook 
or to the people in their company if they don't do anything. Mm. Maybe they just don't believe me. But I mean, I think <laughs> I'm one of a panoply of experts who are saying the same thing, which is yeah. innovate or die. Mm -hmm. And if I use that broad definition of innovation, like how could anybody possibly argue yet they do? Mm. Or maybe they don't argue. They just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they nod politely and then don't change. Yeah. Yeah. And I know exactly what you mean. We've had a great conversation about what innovation is. I'm curious about what you would characterize as what isn't innovation. There's an emotional attachment to the concept of innovation. Mm -hmm. I think everybody wants to think of themselves as doing innovation. And I'm not a big one to dissuade them and say, oh, well, that's not innovation. That is innovation. Mm. And if somebody's doing innovation at a pretty low level and it's pretty like standard, it's already been done a whole bunch of times, I could argue and say that's not really innovative. Right. Or I could take the approach of that's innovative. Great. You could do something more innovative. <laughs> right. Keep it going. So I see this as a journey. Like you're on a journey of innovation. And yes, oh. we can that's really groundbreaking and different. It's like that classic two by two, new market, new product. And then when you're in the upper right, where it's a new product and new market, and you're like, wow, you need a new value proposition. Mm -hmm. Right. And we dealt with that even internally because we deal with these startups and then we, we actually design people's equipment and automation and new products. So you have a company come to us and it's just a product line extension. Pretty clearly it's the same product, just tweaked a little bit. Right. You have a company come to us and say, boy, our markets are begging for this. It's a new product for that market. And then we have these entrepreneurs who are coming up with brand new things. And we struggled for a long time. We're like, okay, what's the dividing point? And what we really realized is it's the, how developed the value proposition is. Is it, and how new is the value proposition? Like, do you need a new value proposition to sell that? And generally you think more of innovation on the side of when you really have at least the journey of innovation. Right. When you're looking at something that's truly requiring its own va new value proposition from what was there before. Mm, right. That to us would signal more innovative versus less. Although, like I said, I would be hard pressed to just say, no, that's not innovative. Yeah. What I would like to say is bad innovation is innovation done in a vacuum. Mm. Okay. People that try to do everything by themselves, even the person that says, I asked my wife, it thus must be good. They're losing out on the market feedback. Right. Their customers. Right. Right. The person that says, I'm going to do this all alone. And they ignore the other advisors who are telling them, what about this? What about this? Even if they're wrong, that ability to collaborate is ultimately going to make the connection that's going to make your idea into a business, not just an idea. Mm. So people that try to take the lone road on innovation and not share within reason, not share within reason, not ask for advice, not truly find advisors. That to me is kind of bad innovation. And I would highly discourage people that are prone to do that from getting into innovation because their likelihood of success is low. Oh, so true. So true. There's an element of hubris, I think, that underpins that a lot of times. And sometimes it's the lack of awareness, but a lot of times there's an element of hubris that it's my idea. I came up with it. I think it's great. And so that means by extension, everyone must think it's great. And that hubris is, that's at the crux of why they were the crazy one willing to take on the risk because they didn't see it. It's the two-sided coin. smarter than the risk. Yeah. <laughs> you need that person too. And it's yeah. like, okay. Yeah. You know what I want is I want the humble entrepreneur who is just so ridiculously hopeful and optimistic that they're like, it's going to work out. 
Right. Not because I'm great, but just because, you know, this idea is really a good idea. It's going to work out and I'm going to take all the help I can get from everybody I can get. We see some of those folks. Mm. And not only are they a pleasure to work with, but frankly, they go furthest. Mm -hmm. They really do. Mm. Because they attract other people who say, I want to be part of that idea. And people ultimately, I mean, as much as I want to say, you can just go out and lift yourself by the bootstraps. It doesn't matter whether I'm working in communities with people of color with all those issues and people are saying, pull you up by the bootstraps. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I think it's kind of equally ridiculous over here to say, oh, entrepreneur, just do it. Make it happen. Right. They're all going to rely on people who are better connected with more money to eventually get them to the place, which means you've got to be collaborative. Oh, so true. I love that you put innovation on this continuum versus this is innovation, this isn't. Because if you put it on a continuum, then that gives you an opportunity to help people see things, bring people on a journey from where they are to where they could be. I think that's so important, particularly in, in the work that you do. Well, that's also the hubris piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. journey if they think that they're already there. Exactly. Exactly. I love the bad innovation frame of this is innovation done poorly. I wonder if there's a way to characterize because this now has come back around to the people, culture, talent side of things. And I wonder if there's a way to help large companies think about it more on a continuum. And what would that do to organizational structures? What would that do to budgeting? If you thought about, okay, this new product upgrade is or isn't innovation, it's the next product upgrade. And we're going to use some allocation from our total development budget, not from this sliver of an innovation budget, if we consider it innovation or vice versa. I think all of those things of bringing the gray into the fold and bringing the continuum. Yeah. All of those conversations come down to culture. Yeah. And how much energy and, and money you're putting into culture. Because at 70 people, we're, we're about 60 people in our organization, right? Everybody says at 70 people, you start losing that ability to have the CEO ensure culture at all levels. Mm. And I believe it fully. Mm -hmm. And so the easy way out is to say, fine, make things much more proceduralized, much more clear. Don't allow the gray in exception management to mess things up. Because frankly, I can't trust the managers of people who I as the CEO never talk to because there's just too large to make those fine gray line decisions. Mm much harder choices to say, I'm going to make sure that every one of those managers is of sufficient caliber and or trained sufficiently well that they can handle the complexities or flag up the complexities. Right. And now I'm talking from an HR perspective, but it's the same for this. The same complexity around so-and-so has some personal issues. Maybe they need some time off. Maybe we need to help them. Doing that very subtle exception management such that it doesn't become a, oh, they're being preferenced because they have home issues. Right. Manage that. You can do that. You can create an environment where people even care about it. Same thing here. Not caring, is it in so-and-so's budget or so-and-so's budget? Is it innovation? Is it out of innovation? But in saying, is this right for the company? And can we flex appropriately to do the right thing for the company? It's a really hard thing to do. And I think it when you talk about high-performing organizations, I think those that could accomplish something much more fluid like that are going to be the ones that uh, are going to outperform. Mm. And by the way, be nice places for people because I guarantee nobody likes to argue over that stuff versus doing the work. Oh, so true. So true. That's a great reframe. 
thank you for that. Might be pie in the sky. It might be pie in the sky, right? But no, no, but everything starts as pie in the sky, right? <laughs> if someone saw an airplane flying over their head 150 years ago, they would have freaked out, right? So everything starts as completely ridiculous. And then everything that's ubiquitous, we use every day, the internet, flying airplanes, all this stuff is like science fiction. We're fine with that with technology, but then when people have these sort of moonshot, like pie in the sky sort of concepts around people and culture and also diversity, it frustrates me because those get dismissed the way flying machines were dismissed 150 years ago, you know, 100 years ago. So I love your pie in the sky concept. My belief is that this all comes down to fundamental dignity, respect, and putting people first. Mm. And I know people say that's a thing, but it's about your philosophy of leadership. If I go in and truly see you as a person and realize that the more important thing is us being humans to one another, and then everything I learned in business school and everything I have to do to the business is a process framework I add on top of that, that must work too. It's a reframing. It means I'm going to approach you as a human and say, okay, how do these systems work or not work? If you're performing badly, that's a system. And it's a pretty clear system. I'm communicating with you where your performance is. I try to get you better. And then you have to be fired. So I'm not advocating, oh, you got to be softer on everybody. But you do, that human element, mm -hmm. which allows for the gray. It means you're not just doing the process. You're doing the process with the spirit of intent first, and then you're applying the process. Same in innovation. Right. You can say in or out, or you can say the spirit of innovation here is that these people work together to create something of value to the company. And then we apply the business processes of how we get it funded and what budget it goes to, et cetera, on top of that. Mm. I think they're actually quite linked as any innovation work. And we've done this to go in and you know assess your innovation capabilities and your potential. It all comes down to culture. Yep. It all comes down to how well are your people able to, even psychological safety plays a role. For sure. And I say that from inclusion and having people feel comfortable in a work environment where there's people that don't look like them. It's the same thing here. It's psychological safety to bring your crazy idea up and be okay with that in the group. And it not only okay, but like feel good about bringing it up, even though you're not the innovator. I mean, I think there are these studies that show that the innovation potential of manufacturing companies and the amount of products they produced MIT did the study, dramatically decreased when they outsourced their production to China and kept their innovation houses here. The interaction between people on the shop floor and the engineers, it does drive a tremendous amount of traditional innovation mm -hmm. in our major corporations. Mm -hmm. That means your innovation isn't just coming from one group. It's coming from an engaged entire team. And that starts with the people. Ah, well said. Well said. Before I let you go. There's been lots of nuggets of wisdom and advice throughout the conversation, but do you have any additional advice or last thoughts for potential innovators out there? So if you're a physical product entrepreneur, you got to look to the ecosystem, got to realize that you're going to be in this for a lot of money before you get out the back end. Find yourself the advisor who can really, really help you. If you're an established company, put the money in. Don't let yourself go fallow. If you're just taking the money out of your company because you spent your entire life there and maybe your family's generation there and it's going really, really well, do the future of your company a favor and sell. Take your money out. Let others who are hungry come in and do that innovation or take your money and plow it back in for the future of the business. 
Lastly, from an innovation standpoint, use a journey, right? I mean, it really is a journey. And that journey is underpinned by your risk profile and how much risk you're willing to take. So up your risk profile, assess where you are in the journey, and just be more innovative tomorrow than you were yesterday. Mm, words of wisdom. Thank you so much. Ethan Karp, CEO of Magnet. Thank you for taking the time and thank you for everything you're doing in the city of Cleveland, state of Ohio, and as a model for the U.S. Thank you for that. Thanks, Jared. Lovely being here. Really, really appreciate being able to share these thoughts. All right. Take care. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this week's show. You can drop us a line on Twitter at Outlast LLC, O-U-T-L-A-S-T-L-L-C, or follow us on LinkedIn where we're Outlast Consulting. Until next time, keep innovating, whatever that means.